Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. I know that uh, this is spring break, and so things are a little crazy for some of our families, and we've got people here and there, and some of you are with us, and some of you are away, hopefully listening and uh, joining us in worship this morning. But man, I don't know about you, but from up here with us, as we've been preparing for a day, even Wednesday night, it was so worshipful just to sing to the Lord together. And I feel like the Lord has blessed us already through the speaking back of his name and speaking of his word. So, man, would you please just, like, let's praise the Lord one more time. Say, thank you, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I know that sometimes in our culture, in our society, we get a little bit uh, put off place or put out of place a little bit when we do things like what we just did. But the way it is for those of us who have put our hope and faith in Jesus is that there is always a moment and there's always a thing to praise the Lord for. Even like Horatio Spafford, who... In that moment of darkest night for him, standing in in the place, over the place where his daughters went down, he had so much peace from the Lord in the midst of torment and suffering, he was able to pin those words that have meant so much to so many of us that God has used. So we know that no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult or crazy or how much suffering there is, how much torment there is, our hearts do as we talked about earlier, they yearn for peace. We yearn for peace. And the reason for that is because God put in us, in our soul, deep within our soul, a desire for peace that really can be filled by nothing other than God himself. This is what the scriptures refer to as the shalom in the Old Testament, the peace, everything going right in the world, everything going right in our relationships, everything going right in the way in which we interact with one another and peace in our lives with every moment and every waking minute. That's what we yearn for, we seek out. The problem is most of us look for it in places where we will never truly find that kind of everlasting peace. We find a little bit of peace because we acquired the thing we wanted, we thought would bring us peace. We know it doesn't last. We find a little bit of peace in the career or the job that we have until it goes away and we recognize that that can never give us everlasting peace as well. Or we find it in a relationship with our spouse or with our children. And when things don't go right, God reveals to us once again that only his presence can bring us that kind of peace. And so we've yearned ever since the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve sinned first in the garden, we have learned that the only way to have that kind of peace is to be back in the presence of God together with him. One day, when he comes to take us home, he will take away the sin that so easily entangles and that distracts and that makes us enemies often of one another and definitely of him, and he will give us the peace that we hunger for. And today, as we're looking at his word, in Matthew chapter 5, we continue on through this trek, through the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking in verse 9, we see this verse that speaks right to this, where he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, you must understand a few things about this. I'm going to talk today about what it means to be a peacemaker. I'm going to talk today about what it means, what it does not mean to be a peacemaker, a gospel peacemaker. And I'm going to talk today about what we need to do in order to become better at being peacemakers. And I will tell you right off the cuff that I am a broken individual, much like many of you are, and I am not perfect at this, but we are on a trek together to become more like Jesus. Amen? And we are striving to do that together. His word is what will be spoken into our hearts by his spirit today. 
If I say anything outside of the word of God, you can jettison it in the trash on the way out. You can throw it away. But his word can bring hope and peace and life change for us this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. So before we even get there, I want to pray one more time over us for our time together in the word. Father, you are the only one who can bring everlasting peace. We know, Lord, that you bring it through salvation, through making us born again, through taking the dead, spiritually dead, and bringing them to spiritual life everlasting. We know that you can do that, and you're the only one that can continue to shape us more and more into the perfect image of your Son. So, Lord, we ask that this morning. Would you work in our hearts? Would you shape us and change us? Lead us to repentance wherever necessary. Lead us to hunger and thirst for you and your righteousness. And, Lord, show us that we need you every moment of every day and that you fulfill all our needs because you are good and gracious for us and to us. Lord, help us to make much of your son today as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, this particular verse, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It is not different from the other verses in the sense that it is one that has been building up to. Jesus has been building up to this verse, and it stands upon the shoulders of everything that has come before it in this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So we have to go back to verse 3 and remember to stack these things together to truly understand what it means to be a peacemaker, a gospel-born peacemaker in the way that Jesus is speaking of here. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the people who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven are the people who are poor in spirit. That means we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing within us that makes God look at us and go, oh, I've got to save that person because they're going to bring so much to my kingdom that I don't have already. That we are beggars spiritually. All we have is our need that we bring to the Lord. And yet, instead of casting us away in his great justice, he decides in his mercy to love us. And then we see, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we recognize that we are sinners of that depraved nature, that we need Jesus, we have nothing within us to make it work out for us long term, it brings us to a place where we mourn our sinfulness and it drives us to an emotional change even where we are broken over our sin. And this is the estate in which we are to be as Christians. Over and over again, all of life is repentance. And it begins with recognizing our need, being broken over our sin, and then it leads us to the next one, which are blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, those who are submitting themselves to the Lord. Those who have been broken, who recognize, no matter how great I think I am, I'm truly a broken man or woman who needs Jesus, and I mourn over my sin and so I will submit to him, for he is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. Only through Jesus do we come to the Father. And then we see that next one in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, when you are broken over your sin, when you are humbled and submitting to the Father, you find that the only thing that truly satisfies is Jesus himself. And so you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. You hunger and thirst to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Because we know that even our righteous deeds, apart from the working of God upon us, are nothing but filthy rags. And so all we have to bring is nothing, yet he loves us so much 
that he's given us Jesus who becomes our righteousness on the cross. And so we hunger and thirst for him. Then we see that leads us to verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who have been given much mercy will give much mercy. Assisting those in need. Helping those that are in a bad place. Not because they deserve it, just like we don't deserve it, but helping those who are in a bad place because Jesus has helped us even when we don't deserve it. And when we show that kind of mercy, we receive mercy. Then blessed are the pure in heart. We spoke of this last week for they shall see God. And it does mean pure in the sense of morally pure. But we know this, our hearts are never morally pure completely. Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. If you lust after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And we know that we fight sin over and over again. Paul says it, one of the greatest Christians we would look at probably in history. And he says, I hate my flesh because it makes me want to do what I don't want to do. And I don't do the things I know I should do. It's a struggle until Jesus comes back to take us home. And so here when we see this statement, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, it seems hopeless. But we also know that word pure in heart, that phrase means those who are singularly focused with one ultimate goal, and that is to be with God and to make much of Him. And we know that because of Jesus, if He has saved us, we can do that exactly because in His eyes, He has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west, And we can honor him and love him and serve him. So we ask for more of God's mercy to remain singularly focused on him so we can see God. And then when all those things are stacking up, and it's not perfect, hear me right, listen, this is not some kind of linear step process for step one and step two and all that stuff's behind us. This is a regular living and breathing part of life, all these things at once. It's much messier than just some kind of simple step process. But as we begin to live in these things more rightly and more truly, it leads us to become the people that can be what verse 9 says, in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. Let me put it to us in a way, talking about this idea of peace. I think we need to look at it in a couple of avenues. But here's the overarching statement. Peacemakers actively pursue gospel peace for the glory of God and the good of others. They actively pursue gospel peace for the glory of God and the good of others. We're going to talk about that in two parts. And almost everything I see in Scripture is in this manner. We have the vertical aspect of our relationship with God. If you want to think about the cross, the vertical beam of this, our relationship with the Father himself through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And then we have the horizontal aspect of humanity. And so being a peacemaker is recognizing the relationship with God part and the relationship with others. So peacemakers actively pursue gospel peace for the glory of God and the good of others. All right, y'all ready to break this down? And those two things. Here we go. Number one, peacemakers actively work to bring gospel peace between God and sinners. You may think, whoa, whoa, you said only God can do that. Yes, but we've been tasked with part of the assignment. He chooses to use us in the process of bringing people who do not yet know him to him so that they can find their hope and peace and joy everlasting in Jesus as well. But here's a fact we must understand. Doing that does not mean that we let go of truth. It does not mean that we let go of purity in order to do that. Many people have lost their way because they've let go of the anchor of the gospel truth. 
in order to reach people. And when you do, you're bringing them into something that's not the gospel. And so you're not bringing them everlasting hope anymore. So we cannot let go or sacrifice purity and truth for peace. In fact, listen to what the scripture says in James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But he says the wisdom from above is first pure. Truth and purity have to come first. That's why I believe Jesus is saying this right behind verse 8 where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because when you're living in that part of it, you then can be the gospel peacemaker he's calling us to be. That he's making us into. One preacher says it like this. First pure, then peaceable. Not the other way around. And that is the order we have in the Beatitudes. First, blessed are the pure in heart, then blessed are the peacemakers. Purity takes precedence over peace. Purity is the basis of biblical peace. Purity may not be compromised in order to make peace. Let me say it like this. Gospel peace is not found in simply appeasing other people. It's not found in making appeasement. Appeasing others at the cost of doctrinal truth might seem kind to people. You hear that? It might seem kind to say, well, that truth is dividing us, and so we can kind of overlook that truth. It might sound kind to people, but it is not kind to God. It is not okay with Him to subvert truth of who He is or what He's called us to in order to make peace with someone unwilling to abide by those truths. Tolerance in this way is not what is meant by gospel peace. Those are hard statements. Another pastor says these words about it. He says, bearing this in mind, we can then understand what a peacemaker is not. A peacemaker is not, as is commonly supposed, the kind of person who is easygoing and laissez-faire, who does not care what anyone else does as long as it does not directly affect him. Neither is the peacemaker always tolerant. You do your thing and I'll do mine. Nor is the peacemaker an appeaser, the kind who wants peace at any price. Appeasement does not make for peace. It just puts off the conflict. The history of Europe during the 1930s is the classic example of this, he says. And he goes on to finish it by saying, The true peacemaker, contrary to what most people think, is not afraid of making waves. A peacemaker is honest, willing to risk pain, even fight for the gospel peace. So we have all these ideas in our mind about what peace means and what it means to be a peacemaker, but I think we need to take a moment and try to take those out of our mind and set them aside for a minute and let the scriptures tell us what it means to walk in that. So this morning, let's understand what it means to be a peacemaker and what it does not mean. In fact, I'll give you one more good quote from a good old dead guy. I like the dead guys, John R.W. Stott, and he says this, about this passage. He says, the visible unity of the church is a proper Christian quest, but only if unity is not sought at the expense of doctrine. Jesus prayed for the oneness of his people. He also prayed that they might be kept from evil and in truth. We have no mandate from Christ to seek unity without purity, purity of both doctrine and conduct. If there is such a thing as cheap reunion, there is cheap evangelism also. Namely, the proclamation of the gospel without the cost 
of discipleship. The demand for faith without repentance. These are forbidden shortcuts. They turn the evangelist into a fraud. They cheapen the gospel and damage the cause of Christ. And I would argue that one of the reasons why the South, by some people's estimates, has been inoculated to the gospel, that means that they're not affected by the gospel preaching. And we know primarily it's because God has to move on the heart. But I think part of it is they have grown up. We have grown up. I grew up in a season of light gospel or easy gospel, which is really false gospel. Because it takes away some truths of the gospel in order to reach more people and make it easier for them to cross the threshold into the church. Now, we are not to make it hard for people, but we are not to take anything out of the truth of the scriptures or of the good news about Jesus, or we are preaching a different gospel, and we cannot do that. We must understand how serious this is because gospel peace does not come without cost. You see, we, we like to think that we can bring peace at any, at any level, at any time, just by whatever we need to do to make peace. But gospel peace is costly. And first of all, it's costly to God. Listen to this passage of Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Listen to the words carefully. For in Him, Jesus, for in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The only way peace has been afforded us for all eternity to take us from sinners damned to hell to saints declared by God to be righteous, even though we know we are not in this moment, is by the way of the blood-paid sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. His life given for ours. The only way that one life is given for ours and makes atonement for everybody is because his life is worth more than everybody that has ever been or ever will be created. He is the creator of all things. And through him and by him have we all been created. And so he is worth more than all things. And so his death on the cross is an infinite cost for the peace that we long for in our souls. It is costly. It is not cheap. And so we therefore should not treat it as cheap. In fact, listen to this, Ephesians 2. It's a little bit longer, but, but hang with me. Ephesians 2, verse 11 and on. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, talking to say, you guys that weren't in the religion with us, remember this, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, this is the way. Through Jesus alone, and the price was greater than we can imagine, it's greater than we can ever fully understand, no matter how long we stare into the good news of the gospel, we'll never really get the full picture 
of the infinite cost that was paid for the peace that we now enjoy in Jesus. But I know this, it's so worthy at price that we can never cheapen the gospel because it might show kindness in some way to someone, but it never shows kindness to Jesus. Never shows kindness to a father who gave up his son. Jesus paid the price, and now we are called to join with him in the work. You guys know this passage well. We talk about it often, but just for the sake of reminding us, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and on. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Means we are now a part of the ministry of reconciling others to God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for sending us Jesus. So let us, church, become these ambassadors, these gospel peacemakers for the glory of our God, making sure not to cheapen it, not to give up truth or purity, but to run headlong into relationship with God and hold tightly to Him as we then reach for those who have not yet come to know Him. This is part of our role as a peacemaker. That's the first one. The second one now gets a little more complicated for us oftentimes. Peacemakers actively work to bring gospel peace between one person and another. Peacemakers, gospel peacemakers, actively work to bring that gospel peace between one person and another. Before that can even happen, though, let me make sure you understand. Before you can be that peacemaker, you have to have this truth. The peace of God must rule in your heart already. I don't mean to know that you've tasted a little bit of that peace, but you're not ruled by it. If you want to be a peacemaker, the peace of God must rule in your heart. It means you must submit. You've got to go through all these things you've already talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to recognize you're a beggar spiritually, that you are broken then over your sin and mourn that sin so that God can then bring you comfort. You recognize that you've got to submit yourself to him because really we think we're big, but we are nothing before him. And so we submit to him. And then we thirst and hunger for righteousness for him. And we see that he leads us into hope for mercy because he is merciful. And when we're filled with that mercy, we give that mercy to other people. And then we have that purity of heart. And that purity of heart that drives us, that that shows us that we need to be singularly focused on His work and His glory for His good and for the betterment of all others. Not for self. Remember, we die. We're broken. We have nothing to bring to the table. But instead, totally focused. Then in that moment, we can see that we can be peacemakers because God is ruling in our heart and has given us that peace. This is what it means to walk with Him and find that peace so that we can be peacemakers. And as antithetical as it sounds, you also have to be a fighter to be a peacemaker. I don't mean you need to be rude or that you need to be mean. That's the opposite of what I'm talking about. But peacemakers fight for peace. They fight for peace. They see that it's a worthy endeavor, actively pursuing peace, not just passively hoping for it, but actively pursuing it, making sure not to seek peace 
at the cost of truth and purity, but actively pursuing peace. Now, let me say a couple of things just on the side here. Just because you actively pursue peace doesn't mean you're going to find peace or be able to make it happen. Just because you're actively trying to make peace, whether between you and another or between two people that are at odds, doesn't mean that one or both those parties are actually going to submit to that peace and then let the the rule of God be the rule of their heart. But our job is to actively pursue it. Now, I've had questions many times before, even as of late, from some of you in this room, is how long do we seek that peace? Like, how long do we pursue it when we keep getting the door slammed in our face? And here's what I know. The Lord says that we forgive seven times 70, right? He doesn't tell us how long to pursue the peace. What he says, though, is things like be gentle and, and, and be patient and merciful to those who are doubting, right? To snatch others out of the fire, making sure not to be stained by the sin on the flesh, right? But, but he, also, he also shows us that we are to pursue the one who's gone astray. But how many times, how long? I don't know the answer to that. I know there's many other things that need to happen at the same time, but here's what I can say. As God gives you opportunity, as God gives you peace to take a break from pursuing peace for a season, you listen to the Holy Spirit. But I guarantee you that if you run into them again at the store or somewhere else, it's a moment to pursue peace. They may not want it, and they may slam the door in your face, but that's an opportunity. And here's what I know. Even if you go to that person and try to pursue peace with them again, and it's not the moment for that to happen, you have not sinned by trying to pursue peace with them. But you might sin if you don't try to pursue peace with them. Look, some of us have people we know in our lives where we've tried and tried and tried, and they have nothing to do with us. They've even asked us not to ask them to meet again or talk again, or that it's not healthy to do so in that short time. Well, then we pray and ask the Lord to give us clarity what to do, but we are to be ambassadors of peace, ambassadors of the gospel. And listen, there's no one perfect. So if you see a brother or you know of a sister who is not doing that, and you feel like the Holy Spirit's putting it on you to go there with them, you should go and ask, hey, how's it going in that pursuit of peace? Can I be someone that might help bring peace? And you ask, making sure we don't cross into what's talked about a little later in Matthew, about taking the speck you know, out of your brother's eye before you take the log out of your own eye. We do it with gentleness and out of love and care because we love one another and because we honestly don't want to see anybody go to hell. We don't want to see anybody go to hell, but we fight for peace. Listen to Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. These are all we're like, yeah, 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 I got that. Listen to these in the church context. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. R. Kent Hughes talks about this, and he says, if we are not peacemakers but troublemakers, there is high probability that we are not true children of God. Regardless of how prominently we wear our evangelicalism, peacemakers are sometimes troublemakers for the sake of peace, but not troublemakers who spread rumors and gossip about others. If you are constantly fomenting discontent, 
if you find joy in the report of trouble and scandal, if you are omnicritical, always fault-finding, if you are unwilling to be involved in peacemaking, if you are mean, if these negative qualities characterize your life, you are probably not a true Christian. Those are hard words. Now let me say this. None of us knows the heart of another. Only the Lord knows the heart. I would argue that you don't even know your own heart. I don't know my own heart because it's deceitful and wicked, as the Scripture tells us. But the Lord knows the heart. And here's what I do know, is that even if you believe someone you know is leaning into this being not a Christian, that's all the more reason, if possible, to try to be a peacemaker. But not to do so with a haughty attitude. Listen, we've got to do it in the way of being recognizing that we are beggars ourselves and we are sinners to the extreme and we mourn over our sin and we are broken and meek under the reign of Christ in our hearts. Let me tell you this too. Peacemakers also know not just when to fight, but they know when to stop talking. You know what I mean by that? Like, have have you ever been verbally assaulted before? You ever had someone come up to you and like just verbally assault you for whatever reason? We're in an argument that's escalating and somebody speaks things they shouldn't say. I mean, all of us have done that too, right? We've said things we shouldn't say. We've, we've been a part of that. But there's, there's a part of this as a peacemaker when you recognize it's time to not say something. Let me give you a good example from a third-party perspective. If someone is talking negatively about someone else, Very seldom, if ever, have I ever thought it was the right thing to do that was helpful, even if I did it. it, it I've never seen it be helpful where I went to that other person that was being talked about and said, hey, you won't believe what Joe was saying about you. That's never helped anybody. Better to go to the one saying it and have a conversation about joy and peace and love and grace, right? Or if someone's coming at you directly, sometimes it's better to not speak, to not defend yourself. Because you know why? You don't need defending. The Holy Spirit has saved you from the sin and the accusations of the enemy so that God sees you as his son or daughter, and that will carry you on through all eternity. There's nothing you need to be defended of. Jesus already paid the price for all those sins. Peacemakers, gospel peacemakers, know when to say nothing. And let me say this to you as we begin to close down today say it like this, that the gospel peace that I'm talking about, it might cost you, and it might cost you dearly, being a gospel peacemaker. It certainly costs God. It cost him everything his son was to him. We cannot even imagine what that means, but we can begin to understand that if it was our child, and I cannot imagine giving my child up for anyone or any group of people, but I can say that we can imagine that because God has paid dearly for the peace that we've received, that it might cost us something to be these peacemakers as well. That uh, dead guy I talked about earlier, John Stott. If you've never, man, I'm reading right now even through uh, John Stott's The Cross of Christ. If you've never read that, now hear me, you may not be a reader and you may be overwhelmed just looking at it. It's thick, but I'm reading it again as a practice before we get to what we celebrate as Resurrection Day. Uh, And man, it is so rich and deep. But he says this, he says, this will remind us that the words of peace and appeasement are not synonyms. It might cost us, he means. For the peace of God is not peace at any price. He made peace with us at immense cost, even at the price 
of the lifeblood of his only son, we too, though in our lesser ways, will find peacemaking a costly enterprise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has made us familiar with the concept of cheap grace. There is such a thing as cheap peace also. To proclaim peace, peace when there is no peace is the work of the false prophet, not the Christian witness. Many examples can be given of peace through pain. When we, are, when we are ourselves involved in a quarrel, there will be either the pain of apologizing to the person that we have injured or the pain of rebuking the person who has injured us. Sometimes there is even the nagging pain of having to refuse to forgive the guilty party until he repents. Of course, a cheap peace can be bought by cheap forgiveness, but true peace and true forgiveness are costly treasures. I was listening to one guy that's a preacher up in New York, and there are some good preachers in New York. And uh, he made the statement that forgiveness always costs someone something. It costs Jesus' life to bring forgiveness to us. And if you forgive someone else, it will cost you. And if you try to make peace, it will probably cost you in some way. Cost your pride, cost something else. But we must be willing to lose everything, everything, for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Willing to lose it all. The peacemaker is willing to humble himself and do whatever it takes in order to see that the glory of God is promoted. Notice what I said. He's willing to do whatever it takes to see the glory of God promoted. That does not mean that you as a peacemaker need to just take whatever comes at you and never ever stand up for right truth or justice. There are times when it's time to stand up against things that are going against the Lord or against the gospel or against the church. But you and I should always do whatever it takes to humble ourselves and to seek to do whatever it takes in order to see the glory of God being promoted. And it means we must be prepared to suffer to see that God being glorified is accomplished. In fact, we're going to look at it right next week. It says the next verse, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are things to stand up to and things to stand up against, even when you're being a peacemaker, because sometimes you've got to fight for peace. Sometimes you have to stand up and do the right thing, humbly, broken, mournfully, but do so because you love God more than you love your own self. Listen to even Jesus' words, and this sounds counterintuitive, but Matthew 10, 34 do not think, he says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, he came to bring peace in Jesus. But because he's bringing peace through Jesus, there will be some who will fight against that and will not come to terms with it and will not repent and believe in Jesus. And it will create division. And so we can seek the peace as long as we don't give up Jesus. As long as we don't give up truth. One more big quote. Bring it to a close, I promise. This is really important. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Where did war come from? 
from man, from sin, and from Satan. Discord was brought into the world in that way, but this blessed God of peace has not, I say it with reverence, he has not stood upon his dignity. He has come, he has done something. God has made peace. He has humbled himself and his son to produce it. That is why the peacemakers are children of God. What they do is to repeat what God has done. If God stood upon his rights and dignity, upon his person, every one of us and the whole of mankind would be consigned to hell in absolute perdition. It is because God is a God of peace that he has sent his son and thus provided a way of salvation for us. To be a peacemaker is to be like God and like the son of God. He is called, you will remember, the prince of peace. And you know what he did as the prince of peace. Though he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, he humbled himself. There was no need for him to come. He came deliberately because he is the prince of peace. So becoming a gospel peacemaker might cost you everything, just like becoming a true Christian might cost you everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen. Listen, brothers and sisters, it might cost you your rights, what you feel are your rights to be a peacemaker. You might have to give those up. It might cost you some personal peace where you're in the middle of turmoil and nobody likes that, especially some of you born peacemakers, right? That Lloyd-Jones guy, he says it one more time. He says, he's even prepared to suffer wrong and injustice in order that peace may be produced and God's glory magnified. You see, he has finished with himself and with self-interest and self-concern, he says, what matters is the glory of God and the manifestation of that amongst men so that if his suffering is going to lead to that, he will endure it. Listen, it might also cost you your reputation. People might talk about you at the store when they see you pass by. They'll definitely talk about you on Facebook, Twitter, whatever else. It might cost you your reputation. And it might cost you relationships because sometimes you've got to fight for the right peace, for the gospel peace. And it means standing up when it feels better to sit down and watch. But whatever it might cost you, brothers and sisters, I tell you it is worth it because Jesus is worth it. Being made sons and daughters of God is worth it. Being made sons of God is something only God can do and it means God is declaring you and me to have all the rights and privileges of Jesus. That's insane when you think about it. Even though there are costs associated with pursuing peace like this or with becoming a Christian, here's what we know. No matter what difficulty or pain or suffering that we endure, we have a Father who continually pursues us with His peace. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how sinful we are, no matter how many times we have screwed it up, the bad choices we've made, no matter how vast those are, we know that we are never beyond redemption because Jesus Christ knew all those things ahead of time and he humbled himself to the point of becoming our servant, even to the point of death, death on the cross in our place, so that his blood was poured out for us and all the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on him and his shoulders until he drank it down to the end and died for us on the cross. And then he rose in victory so that all who believe in him should not perish or ever even taste of death so that we could be with him forever. This 
is the ultimate peacemaker who came to fight Satan, sin, death, and hell so that we can be brought into the kingdom of God and be called sons and daughters. So let us be like him and be ambassadors for peace. And I know it'll be a struggle in some certain situations. And it's easy to look at some people and go, you should do this. It's hard to walk in those shoes sometimes, but I will tell you this. If you need somebody to go with you, I'll go. If I need somebody to go with me, will you go? Let us pursue peace with the Lord. Let us try until the Lord gives us some peace. He calls us sons of God. Today, if you've never heard this truth, today's a day of salvation for you. You can have peace everlasting that will never, ever go away because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. So I pray that even now, I'm going to pray for you. I pray even now, if you don't know the Lord, and I'm not talking about necessarily visitors here, people that might have been in this church for 50 years might not truly be his. So I'm going to pray that God would save anyone that is within hearing or viewing shot of this, that God would do a mighty work in the souls that only he can do. And then we're going to take communion together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you, Lord. And we need the peace that comes only from the sacrificial work of your son on the cross so that we might then in turn be your ambassadors of peace and grace and mercy of the gospel to others. Lord, help us, give us discernment. Help us to know what we can do and should do for you. And Lord, if we step into an area we should not, would you please, by your spirit, pull us back and lead us a different way. For Lord, we want to be immediately obedient to you at all times for your glory, for you alone deserve the glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.